Hello there, I'm Toby Haydock, and when the end does come, they won't know anything about it. Welcome to Too Much Information, which aims to tell you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, a television programme about hurtling into danger with a spring in your step and a smile on your face. Whether you're discovering the episodes for the very first time, or you know your Greg Suttons from your stuck buttons, then you're extremely welcome to this odyssey which aims to go through the series one episode at a time. In this edition, it's what could have been the final ever instalment of Doctor Who. Bare bones and expediency are what script editor David Whittaker has to battle with when writing a script for a programme for which time is, literally, running out which possibly influenced his writing. So join me as I give you the who, what and when of Doctor Who, the brink of disaster. Or, and what would you have called the next episode if there'd been one? The precipice of calamity? The verge of catastrophe? First broadcast on the 15th of February, 1964, at 5.15pm. It starred William Hartnell as Doctor Who, William Russell as Ian Chesterton, Jacqueline Hill as Barbara Wright, and Carol Ann Ford as Susan Foreman. It was written by David Whittaker, produced by Verity Lambert, and directed by Frank Cox. It was watched by 9.9 million people, and the audience appreciation was 60. The explosions keep on coming as the TARDIS continues on a journey it really doesn't want to go on. And if it has to, it's going to play havoc with the minds of the crew in order to display its displeasure. The erratic behaviour of the ship's occupants sets them against each other. Mistakenly thinking Chesterton has attacked him, the Doctor resolves to throw the two teachers off the ship. But the fault locator issues a warning, and the Doctor realises that they have less than 10 minutes to survive. Barbara reasons that the TARDIS is trying to warn them about something, but time is running out and the crew topple on the brink of, well, you know. The when. 13th of January, 1964. Rehearsals begin for the first instalment of this story, The Edge of Destruction. The Brink of Disaster's director, Frank Cox, attends, shadowing the first episode's director, Richard Martin. It's not clear exactly when Cox, a novice director whose first job Doctor Who will be, is assigned to helm The Brink of Disaster, but once again, the series is being used to blood a newcomer. Gentle Giant Cox is just 23 years old and has only recently completed the BBC Director's Course. Cox isn't hugely interested in science fiction, but the character dynamics in the script appeal to him. His approach to his work doesn't gel with that of Richard Martin, but as he is here merely to observe, this doesn't cause any problems. 20th of January 1964. Rehearsals begin for the brink of disaster at the Army Drill Hall, 239 Uxbridge Road. Cox is grateful for the support of William Russell during this nerve-wracking first engagement. 
24th of January. The Brink of Disaster is recorded at Lime Grove Studio D. The day starts at 10.30am with camera rehearsals. Lunch is at 1 for an hour and then there's a tea break at 3.45 during which there is a photo call. At about 4pm the regulars have to recreate a scene from last week's instalment in order to provide the Radio Times with a suitable image for its preview of the story which will go alongside the first episode. Of the photos taken during this session, only the one printed in the Radio Times survives. Camera rehearsals continue from 4.15 until supper at 7pm, line-up is at 8 to 8.30pm and then the programme is recorded from 8.30pm to 9.45pm. An hour and 15 minutes and it's all in the can. 25th of January. Having finished work on the brink of disaster yesterday, Carol Anford capitalises upon her visibility as Susan and is back at the Beeb the very next day by taking part in a live episode of Jukebox Jury from Television Centre Studio 2, alongside fellow guests Adam Faith, Jean Metcalf and Phil Spector. She casts her verdict on a number of new releases, including Ali Ali O by Frankie Vaughan, Anyone Who Had a Heart by Cilla Black, I'm the Lonely One by Cliff Richard and Thank You by Petula Clark. According to host David Jacobs, Carol is fresh from a hair-raising adventure, which is a fair assessment of what she's just been up to. 15th of February. The Brink of Disaster is broadcast on BBC television. Its 9.9 million viewers is down half a million from the previous week. The audience appreciation is 60. One lower than last week, but still higher than anything involving cavemen or the first two episodes of the Dalek serial. 31st of January, 1969. The episode is cleared for destruction, and shortly after that is no longer on the edge of it, but actually in the flames. Although copies survive at BBC Enterprises, including an Arabic version of each episode of the story. 9th of August 1980. The story is shown at the Doctor Who Appreciation Society event, Interface One. 6th of December 1986. As part of a celebration of 50 years of television, the story is shown at the Institute of Contemporary Arts. 22nd of September 1990. The story is shown as part of the BSB Satellite Channel Weekend of Doctor Who, introduced by Debbie Flint, Shima Pereira and John Nathan Turner, with a host of guests and episodes, largely from the black and white era of the show. The story, however, fails to rebut any criticism it might be a tad confusing by being screened initially in the wrong order, and so the channel shows it again the following day, this time the right way round. The what? This is the 13th episode of Doctor Who, and the fourth of those 13 to only credit the regular cast. But after nearly a quarter of the show's total instalments have thus far featured only the main cast, this is the last time this ever happens. The arc in space comes close with two unseen voice actors also on the credits, aside from the main cast, on episode one. Heaven Sent 
also comes close, but has one credited guest actor in Jamie Reed Quarrel as The Veil. The stock music used on this episode includes Destructures 2 by Desmond Leslie. This is a very short section and played at the wrong speed. It's a 78 RPM disc played at 45 RPM, which plays over the opening scene when Susan appears from the bedroom. Desmond Leslie has a very rare recent claim to fame. He is the person who, in a now infamous piece of surviving footage from the TV satire show That Was the Week That Was, broadcast live, interrupts journalist and presenter Bernard Levin during an April 1963 broadcast. One minute, One minute Mr Levin, says Leslie politely, asking his quarry, would you stand up, please, before formally berating Levin for a review of the cabaret show An Evening of Savagery and Delight, in which Leslie's wife was appearing. Leslie tells Levin it was not a review, but a savage attack, and his politeness then takes a downturn, and he says, there's just one tiny thing to be done, and thumps Levin in front of the viewing, live audience. Leslie is bundled off, and Levin continues, that wasn't part of our Saturday evening show. Can we concentrate on non-violence, you and I, as he regains his composure to enthusiastic applause. Leslie, therefore, can probably claim to be the only person to have composed incidental music used in Doctor Who to have thumped anybody on primetime BBC television. The rest of the story's music is as follows. The Moody Drum Pounding of Music Concrete Part 2, number 1, by Buxton Orr, is played when the Doctor resolves to throw Ian and Barbara off the ship. If Buxton Orr ever punched anyone, history does not have a visual record of it. Strangers in the Fog by Alan Langford is used again for the planet and stars on the scanners, as it had been in the first instalment of the story. For the end of the planet sequence, the gong is from Stress and Anxiety, also by Langford. For Hartnell's monologue at the scanner, The Day the Sky Fell by Desmond Leslie is played, but again, it's a 78 RPM record rendered at the slower 45 RPM. The gong clash at the end of the episode is an echo forward to Tristram Carey's score for the next story, Marco Polo. There are only three sets this week. The main control room, the living quarters and only one new one. A small section of snow, a snowy plateau, created to set the scene for next week's episode. This is then cleared at the end of the evening and the scene in which Barbara and Susan face the open doors with nothing beyond them becomes the last sequence to be shot from this episode, meaning the actresses have to change into their earlier costumes to shoot this out-of-sequence scene. The reprise from last week is a film recording from the previous instalment. The title and caption are played over it before the action then begins with the new performance. The script suggests that when the Doctor sees Ian, it looks as if the schoolteacher is sleepwalking. He wasn't to fall until after the Doctor's first line, not before it, as ultimately happens. Just before the Doctor and Susan argue about how to deal with their guests, the script says, Susan and the Doctor look at each other as if a silent communication has passed between them, a throw forward to the occasional idea that there's a psychic link or some kind of mental connection between Time Lords, or indeed the same Time Lord. 
Not that we know what any of that's all about yet. The Doctor's line, That is my business, after Barbara asks what he's going to do, is a late addition to the script. The stage directions suggest slightly different blocking from what we get. Barbara in CU, show feet near her head. She looks up in fear. Show Doctor standing over her. Barbara looks up at the Doctor, seeing no compromise in his stern face. The script says that the Doctor tells Barbara, There is no escape. Your foolish game has endangered our lives. Ultimately, escape becomes alternative and foolish game becomes little trick. Susan was to say she does believe Barbara slightly earlier in the script than she ultimately does. The Doctor was to refer to the TARDIS as this ship, but this is, crucially, changed to my ship. The moment where Ian grabs Barbara and she talks him down is not in the script. This is inserted to smooth the action back to the teachers after the fault locator business and emphasises that Ian wasn't trying to strangle the Doctor, but rather to pull him away from the controls. The Doctor's speech about the ship being at the point of disintegration is less dramatic in the script. The whole ship's in jeopardy. You couldn't have done it. All four of us together couldn't have done it. The rewrite gives the Doctor a big moment and becomes a turning point which changes the emphasis of the dynamic and of the story at this juncture. The Doctor fumbles his line about the ship being on the brink of destruction, an uneasy amalgam of the story's first and second episode titles as it is. But even though this episode is called The Brink of Disaster, the dialogue at this point in the script says The Brink of Destruction, which Hartnell sort of says, just about. Ian was to say total destruction when talking about the threat to the ship, but that would have been three destructions in quick succession, so disintegration is substituted to avoid repetition. Having told the Doctor that the fault locator is lighting up every minute a page or so ago, Susan then comes back and says that it's lighting up every minute in the script, i.e. the light is regularly going off every minute, thus giving the crew a measurement of time. However, this is changed to every quarter of a minute to give the impression of time ticking away, which isn't really what the script was suggesting. The script is suggesting the minute both times gives the crew a way of measuring a minute in time, which leads to Barbara's reasoning after this. So it seems that no one on the studio floor quite gets this part of the script, and so has changed it. Now David Whittaker would have been on hand to check, so maybe everyone's getting confused at this point, or maybe they don't refer it to him. It was also supposed to be Ian who concluded about the measure of time business, but Barbara now takes this. She then explains, as she does in the script, about the clock face, but then Ian was to conclude that time is running out, but Barbara takes this line too. So whereas on paper it's a bit of a joint effort, the finished programme gives all of the reasoning to Barbara, making her much stronger. Later, Ian was to deduce that the TARDIS replaced time with the light on the fault locator, but again, Barbara gets this line in the final product. William Russell has allowed some of his dialogue to be sacrificed in order to give Jacqueline Hill a bit more of the intelligent dialogue, improving her role and Barbara's contribution to the story, 
which is further proof, where it needed, that his knighthood is long overdue. When explaining about the column rising, showing the extent of the power thrust, the Doctor had an additional line in the script, which is cut from the final version. The column holds down the power too, of course. Both Susan and Barbara refer to the column as the central column in the script, but they decide not to in the episode, as it's pretty obvious where the column is. The Doctor is supposed to say to Ian, You'd be blown to a cinder in a split second. But what comes out of Hartnell's mouth is, You'll be blown to atoms by a split second. It's not the last time he'll make a balls of cinders, as we'll discover in the chase. The script knows what its hero moment is. The Doctor is seen in an area where light and shadow make his face seem ominous, adding gravity to his words, it says before his big speech. Pretty much all of Ian and the Doctor's dialogue as they are hunched over the fast return switch, particularly the Doctor's explanations, are not in the script. In it, once they've found the switch, he does a quick fiddle and everything is back to normal. So there's quite a lot of clarification put in here after the writing of the script. Hartnell's line about going a little bit around the bend is a late addition. It's not in the camera script at all. After Ian and the Doctor have their laughing moment at the console, as the ship takes off and the action fades to black, there is a recording break in order for everyone to get changed for the next adventure, which wouldn't sustain Ian being in his dressing gown for the whole thing. The bit of chat with Ian pirouetting in his costume and being called chic is improved by the cast, and again, not in the script. The Ulster Ian is wearing is not in the script from Gilbert and Sullivan, so he doesn't do his big enough for two gag, but instead it's from Ferdinand de Lesseps, who developed the Suez Canal, who, having been cut out here, up until now remains unmentioned in the whole Doctor Who canon, Paul Chap. The uncredited cast and crew of this story were Brian Hodgson, Special Sound, Tony Lightley, Production Associate, Jeremy Hare, AFM, Margaret Allen, Secretary, Dennis Channon, Lighting, Mark Lewis, TM2, Clive Doig, Vision Mixer, Jack Bruitt, Sound Supervisor, Daphne Dare, Costumes, and Ferigi, Makeup. And what about the cause of all the trouble in this adventure, that pesky fast return switch? Well, no wonder the regulars didn't happen upon it in the previous episode, because, well, actually, it wasn't there. So that's why we're talking about it this week, because added in what looks like felt-tip pen to the panel on the TARDIS console, the words fast return are absent from the edge of destruction. And you can go and take a look, if you like, 24 minutes and 15 seconds in, when Hartnell is at the panel right at the end of the episode, which, this week, has the fast return switch on it. It isn't there. And so it clearly wasn't present for the recording of the Edge of Destruction and has been added to the brink of disaster. The Who Frank Cox Frank Dixon Cox was born on the 28th of May 1940 in Perivale, London. He was schooled at Ealing Grammar School and from a young age loved poetry. 
Frank also discovered a love of opera and ballet, which would continue, and whilst at school, he was part of the Drama Society, performing in a number of plays. Though determined to become an actor, he was persuaded to read English at Leeds University. Whilst there, Frank and fellow English student Ronald Pickup entered the Sunday Times Student Drama Festival. Each performing their own monologue, they were chosen to perform in a production of Harold Pinter's The Birthday Party in Istanbul and Ishmaler in Turkey. Another of the competition winners, Ralph Wilton, later a Doctor Who production manager, directed, with Ronald playing Stanley and Frank Goldberg. The production visited Istanbul and then Ishmaler for a day in each location. However, the Turkish audiences understood nothing of the play, with many walking out. During the interval, it was decided that the company would only perform the second act and hope that no one would still be following and realise that they had actually abandoned the third. Whilst the play may not have been a great success, the company enjoyed exploring Turkey while they were there. Frank and Ronald would become lifelong friends, whilst Frank and Ralph would cross paths again years later at the BBC, although the pair never worked together. Frank did, however, play a part in getting Ronald his first TV role in Doctor Who's The Reign of Terror. Frank graduated in July 1962 and returned home to pursue his desire to act, but was unsuccessful in applying to RADA. However, at this time he bumped into an old friend from Ealing Grammar, who was working at the BBC's film library in Ealing and wangled Frank a gopher job there. It was through watching and learning from those in the library that Frank first became interested in production and he soon found himself as a floor assistant at Television Centre, as holiday relief working on series such as Maygray, This Man Craig and The Troubleshooters. With the launch of BBC Two, he applied to become a floor manager but was told he was too inexperienced but was instead offered a place on the director's course. Whilst on the course, Frank found himself shadowing an early soap opera, Compact. His final piece of the course featured an up-and-coming actor by the name of Brian Blessed. Frank chose Alan Silito's The Bike for Blessed to read for a group of children. Doctor Who would be Frank's first official directorial posting. A few years ago, Frank wrote these hitherto unpublished words about that first job. In February 1964, I was a mere 23 years old, fresh off the director's course at the BBC, when I was suddenly asked to direct an episode of what was then called a new sci-fi series called Doctor... Um, something or other. They couldn't even recall the title of this series. I took it on, met the producer, Verity Lambert, and eventually began what were known as outside rehearsals. The leading actor, William Hartnell, seemed strangely insecure and clearly liked standing majestically in the TARDIS, declaring, I am the Doctor, but he found his lengthy speeches difficult to remember, so much so that he referred to them as Bloody Macbeth. This was not helped by the fact that this was a fill-in episode, written virtually overnight and set completely inside the TARDIS with no new characters. Eventually, William Russell, who was playing Ian, offered to help by taking over some of the plot dialogue lines himself. William Hartnell was grateful indeed. The storyline of this episode is not too complex. The Doctor, Ian, Susan and Barbara are in the TARDIS when an explosion occurs. The Doctor initially thinks it's Ian and Barbara's fault. It gradually dawns on the travellers 
that what they have been experiencing is an attempt by the TARDIS itself to warn them of something. Whilst Frank was never one for events and conventions, he was always pleased to hear how surviving cast members William Russell and Carol Ann Ford were. For their part, they remembered Frank as a gentle giant. The much-talked-about shot of Hartnell's spotlit soliloquy is perhaps something of a surprise for Doctor Who at the time, but is an example of Frank calling upon his time as an actor. Frank would, of course, return to the show to direct the latter half of The Censorites, and then, for the next five years, Frank found himself continuing as an assistant on the floor as well as directing when allowed. Directorial roles included The Revenue Man and The First Lady. His one and only episode of Doomwatch allowed Frank to cast an actor he had his eye on, Brian Cox, no relation. Doomwatch was a series Frank would have had great sympathy with, as he was always an early adopter of new ideas and was fascinated not only with how everything worked, but also in the world around him. Frank's other directing work included the likes of Softly Softly Task Force, in which he was delighted to be allowed onto location and to be given a little action to shoot at last, as well as a play for today in which he cast Richard Briers. Although not a naval man, Frank enjoyed Warship as once again it gave the chance to flex his directing muscles as he had the support of the Navy and naval ships at his disposal. Having said that, of the series, he was particularly pleased with Subsmash, telling the story of a failed submarine exercise captained by the actor Dennis Lill. Frank was especially pleased with the casting of Lil, having tried to cast him in other series before, but to no avail. Lil, of course, is well known to Doctor Who fans as Dr. Fendelman in Image of the Fendal and Sir George Hutchinson in The Awakening. The third and final episode Frank directed of Warship saw Lyme Regis double for North Africa. Lyme Regis is where Frank would eventually retire to. He continued his love of theatre as an audience member, regularly going to plays and operas, and would review whatever he saw for Plays and Players magazine. He was not afraid to give an honest opinion of a production, and if he didn't enjoy what he'd seen, he would say so. He directed two episodes in the second series of Sutherland's Law. What was to have been only two weeks' work became almost three years for Frank. Having initially gone up to Scotland to direct the first episode of the second series, The Thirteenth Man, Frank found himself producing. Frank told the tale that Neil McCallum, the producer, had decided at short notice not to return for the second series, and Frank, having shown an interest in the scripts beyond that of a visiting director, was asked to produce the second series himself. His first decision was to reshoot the opening titles, as he didn't like them, nor the title music for that matter. Frank had new titles and a theme put together and was very pleased with them. However, upon showing them to his departmental head, he was told in no uncertain terms to bring back the original titles and music. This was the first lesson for Frank as a producer, not to rock the boat too soon. As his promotion to producer had happened at such short notice, Frank also directed the episode as had originally been planned. Frank enjoyed his time in Scotland and got on well with the regulars. Ian Cuspertson became known as Ian Custardbum to both Frank and the regular crew. Very aware that the concept of the procurator fiscal was a Scottish system, Frank worked hard to get Scottish writers such as Robert Banks-Stewart and Jack Gerson involved. 
Whilst he brought in experienced directors such as Pennant Roberts and Douglas Camfield, Frank gave Andrew Morgan his second ever directing credit, something which Andrew never forgot. Frank was not especially career-minded and happily directed again after Sutherland's Law, as well as producing when possible. He went on to direct the likes of The Brief, his Edge of Destruction colleague Richard Martin was one of the other directors of that show, and EastEnders, as well as producing Escape, Cat's Eyes and finally High Road, which took him back to Scotland. Sadly, Frank's series of Sutherland's Law have never been released on DVD, which is a great shame as it was a series he held in a very special place in his heart. Not one for keepsakes, Frank had little in the way of mementos from his life in television, but what he did keep was an engraved glass commemorating his time on Sutherland's Law, which had been given to him by the production team. Not long after returning to London, Frank met his soon-to-be wife, actress Bridget Biddy Turner. The two crossed paths at the BBC, but they never worked together and they were eventually set up by mutual friends. They were engaged and married in 1977, although they never had any children. Biddy would later become godmother to future actor Tom Burke. The strike actor is the son of illustrious thespes David Burke and Anna Calder Marshall, friends to both Biddy and Frank. Frank followed Tom's career as he became a leading man, very proud to have watched him growing up. Biddy, by the way, would also eventually become part of the Hooniverse herself, playing Alice Cassini in Gridlock. Frank went freelance from the BBC in the early 1980s, after having been allocated to work on a series which he wasn't particularly keen on. Despite his best efforts, there was no question of him being allocated to another series instead. Frank stood his ground and resigned from the BBC, only to find himself back in the same office the next day and better paid as a freelance director. At home, both with cast and crew, Frank never particularly struggled for work, and after High Road, he lectured in directing, as well as tutoring at RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, in the 1990s and early 2000s. His work at RADA saw him teaching acting for screen, as well as mentoring young actors, including the young Bertie Carvel. When possible, Frank would stay with Biddy if she were on tour or working in the regions. He explored Stratford-upon-Avon and Wiltshire in 1997, whilst she was at the RSC, enjoying his time in the company's rather low-ceilinged cottages. Whilst Biddy was in Stanley Horton's Hindle Wakes at the Royal Exchange in Manchester, Frank visited for the weekend. He suggested on Biddy's day off that they should go into Manchester and explore the city. Biddy was most insistent that as she spent most of her days there anyway, they should explore a gallery on the outskirts instead. That day, an IRA bomb went off in St Anne's Square, which is where Frank had intended to explore. As Frank said, We were so lucky. If Biddy hadn't objected to going in that morning, heaven knows what might have happened to us. As Frank's work at RADA came to an end, due in part to a wish for a quieter life, as well as Bridget's failing health, the couple retired to Piddletrandhide. Bridget continued to work, although it became gradually more difficult for her. Doctor Who was actually her final acting role, meaning his first job as a director and her last role as an actor were the bookends of their long careers, and they were both Doctor Who. Alongside an old friend of hers, Georgine Anderson, 
who played the other Cassini sister. Or was it her wife? Whilst in Dorset, Frank began watercolour classes every week. Although he hadn't been a painter previously, Frank became adept with a brush and could produce a painting every four weeks, although he strictly only painted during the classes. His meticulous eye as a director often coming through both in the detail of his paintings and his composition. His love of theatre and opera continued as Frank would regularly make the trip to London to see productions, particularly those featuring old friends. One of the last that Frank saw was his colleague and friend Ian McKellen in the title role of King Lear at the Duke of York Theatre, to which he had been personally invited. Frank would regularly visit Glyndebourne Opera with the actor David Swift and his wife Paula. A trip to the opera would always be accompanied by a picnic beforehand. Frank never missed a National Theatre live broadcast or the chance to see both opera and ballet broadcast at the Plaza Theatre in Dorchester, always sitting in the same seat with a large glass of Merlot, and he was well known by the staff for his weekly visits. A quieter life in Dorset suited Frank in his retirement, especially following the loss of Biddy. She passed away peacefully on the 27th of December 2014. After this, Frank began his round walk, a daily walk encompassing some of the views that he and Biddy so loved in Piddletrant Hyde. Frank was always an early adopter of technology and kept in touch with many friends via Skype, even in its infancy. He was an early advocate of fax machines and mobile phones as well, telling Burke and Calder Marshall that they would be commonplace in the future. Frank was incredibly widely read and a staunch Labour supporter, although latterly not so much a fan of Jeremy Corbyn. Frank Cox died on the 29th of April 2021 at the age of 80. And so ends another episode of Doctor Who. Well, the Doctor's speech is clearly the best bit. Hartnell, majestically framed with his back to the TARDIS console amid some moody lighting and the constant rocking explosions, holds his own as he delivers it. The episode builds to this moment, and the leading man is more than up to it, though he is matched performance-wise by Jacqueline Hill, generally a calm, troubled presence throughout the hysteria, grounding everything with intelligence and reason. This is a store-cupboard story, with the team only able to make a drama out of what is available. Thankfully, they have an extremely strong quartet of regulars, a brilliant, peerless spaceship design, and a show which can thrive simply on everything being a bit... weird. Carol Ann Ford channels the more unearthly qualities of Susan that she isn't always allowed to explore, especially if there's something to be frightened of. But here, she's at her unsettling best, especially when she emerges into the console room and throws suspicion on the teachers. The repetitive explosions that rock the ship as the story heads towards its promised climax are a simple but extremely effective dramatic tool. That the denouement is so batty it deserves a medal, the TARDIS is behaving like Ted Rogers in the quiz show 321, hurling out indecipherable clues and expecting the crew to interpret them correctly, doesn't, in the long run, matter. It's not really about the story. The crew's odd behaviour isn't really explained by the ending, but there are so many lovely moments between them, not least the Doctor and Barbara making up again at the end, and the two men facing oblivion together, their differences set aside as they stand firm against the incoming apocalypse, upper lips as stiff as can be. 
It's about being unsettling and strange in a way that Doctor Who can only really be in this period of its history, when we aren't sure of the format, when the characters aren't fully established, and here in the 1960s, when anything goes. And sometimes it has to go because, well, we're on telly soon. And here, here, it goes right to the brink, both in terms of the story and the production. Oh, and as we learn about each other, so we learn about ourselves. Doctor Who, The Brink of Disaster, featured title music by Ron Grainer, BBC Radiophonic Workshop. The designer was Raymond Cusick, and the associate producer, Mervyn Pinfield. Coming next, a journey to Cathay peaks at the very beginning of the story, at least geographically, as the crew embark on another epic trek, but this time in history. That's next time on Doctor Who, Too Much Information. Next episode, The Roof of the World. Or, it may be a giant footprint in the snow, but we aren't telling that story yet. Too Much Information, The Brink of Disaster, was written and presented by me, Tony Hado. With special thanks to, and additional writing by, Alex Moore. Thanks to Mark Ayres, Richard Bignall, Steve Brusker, David Brunt, Peter Crocker, Graham Kibble-White, Simon Gerrier, Jim Saxter, Rhys Williams, and Rhys Williams' dad. The series consultant is Richard Bignall. And the music for this podcast has been specially composed by Wayne Shepherd. There is a supplemental podcast, one per story as opposed to per episode, entitled Far Too Much Information, which is for now exclusive to patrons who also qualify for bonus material, early releases and other exclusives, including pictures of a cockapoo called Bernard. Patrons are also nearly six months ahead with my Happy Times and Places podcast, so if you want to hear esteemed science fiction journalist Steve O'Brien eulogise Black Orchid, or Full Circle writer Andrew Smith get all misty-eyed about The Dominators, then accept my command and nip over to patreon.com forward slash Toby Hayden. Much of the Frank Cox material comes from a series of interviews and a long-standing friendship with Frank Cox enjoyed by Alex Moore, who has kindly shared and collated the resultant biography. I have also consulted various reference works for this podcast, Doctor Who, A Complete History, edited by John Ainsworth and Mark Wright, with contributions from Jonathan Morris, Alistair McGowan and Richard Atkinson, and much of it based, of course, on those fantastic archives features done by Lord Andrew of Pixley. Richard Bignall's Nothing at the End of the Lane is one of the best things ever and is fantastic for getting arcana about this period of the show. 
How Stammers and Walkers, the 60s and the first Doctor Handbook are both excellent and uncovered much of what we now take for granted about this era, ditto J. Jeremy Bentham's Doctor Who, The Early Years. And my golly, there are some fantastic pictures in there too. The TARDIS wiki page and Shannon and Patrick Sullivan's complete history of time travel have also been very, very valuable for quick, handy reference, and I subscribe to the British newspaper archive, Ancestry.com and Newspapers.com, which are vital resources, but they're also places where it's very easy to get lost for several millennia, so careful what you do when you go there. I would also like to acknowledge the immense amount of material provided by Simon Guerrier, who has a lot of David Whittaker-related stuff that he has meticulously filed and very generously shared. I walk in the shadows of giants, but giants who were probably bullied at school and had to hide in the minutiae of a long-running BBC science fiction programme. The hard work of music research around this story was done by Rhys Williams, and some of it was presented by The Evil Dalek on YouTube, who goes into greater detail and deserves the credit for much of what we currently know about the sounds in this episode, and I am again indebted to Rhys for showing me this. I would like to thank the many patrons who make these podcasts possible, and they include Ruben Herfindahl, Stephen Moffat, not that one, Paul Hayes, James Curry-Smith, Simon Curtis, Tim Arding, Kevin Clark, not that one, Ginger Animator, Rick Moran, Scott Pride, Radit Aritza, Nigel Bromley, Paul Gregory, Ian Radford, Joe McLachlan, Gareth Bowley, David Bickley, Steve O'Brien, Keith Adams, Ollie Barrett, Andrew Jolly, Tim Jolly, Aaron Gullias, Simon Coling, Paul Colnaghi, Ben Cook, Martin Cook, Matt Corner, Paul Cornell, that one, Leslie Coots, Ben Cowdell, Peter Crocker, Philip Craggs, Lee Kremin, Dave Curran, Paul Philip Dahlgren, Matt Dale, Rob Dawson, Chris Davies, Hugh Davies, Robert Davies, Shanti Day, Ian Dean, Tim Dickinson, Drew, Paul Dykes, Andrew East, Andrew Egan, Mark Findlay-Smith, Paul Gibbons, Dead Gillespie, Charles Gears, Lisa Gledhill, Robin Grone, Paul J. Guest, Thomas Gerrier, Hammer House of Podcast, Susan Harrison, Steve Hatcher, Duncan Harvey, Ronald Hayden, Paul Hayes and Legion Henderson. If you would also like to be listed on an episode, you can become a patron too. Patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. The tiers start from £3 per month, and that gets you access to most of the bonus material. There are other inducements as you go higher up the tiers, but I don't like to withhold too much. It just feels wrong. So most things you pretty much get at the £3 a month mark, and that is for three releases per week. That doesn't include the dog photos. They're a bonus. Three releases per week, every week. £3 a month is the lowest tier, and you get 10% off that if you sign up for a year. And patronage gets you a listing on certain episodes and early material, bonus material and all sorts of other goodies. Now, look, I know times are tough. Uh, and if you cannot subscribe on a monthly basis, you can't commit to that. I totally understand. But if you enjoy a particular episode or are feeling particularly flush, you can go to ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydock and bug me whatever you want, whenever you want, however often or not you want. But you know what costs you nothing? 
to go to iTunes, to go to Podbean, to just go anywhere on the internet. A five-star review really, really helps with my algorithms, and I'm getting on. I need as much algorithm tweaking as I can get, uh, and any lines of review that you can put together to tell other people what you like about these is really, really helpful in these days of, uh, well, people perusing the internet and needing things to stand out to them. That, your kind words, would help them to stand out. By them, I mean these. And I'm not going to retake that because you've probably stopped listening now anyway. So listen, uh, please, yes, uh, uh, become a patron, go to Kofi, or just put nice words about these for free anywhere and everywhere you can on the internet. Thank you so much. I'm a stand-up comic. You can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydoke, H-A-D-O-K-E, and these podcasts have their own feed at Haydoke Podcasts. I do comedy once a week in Manchester at Excess Malarkey Comedy Club on a Tuesday, but there is an internet uh, example of the sort of thing we got up to during lockdown. We couldn't put on shows on comedy stages, so we put them on from our living rooms, and uh, because there was no geographical problem with uniting people via Zoom. We got comics from all around the world, from Eddie Pepitone in the States to Alice Fraser in Australia, and some top-notch UK-based talent too, from Nish Kumar to Mark Watson via Ed Gamble and James Acaster. And that was all free at the point of context to put a smile on people's faces during the lockdown. And the evidence is still there at twitch.tv forward slash excess malarkey where we also do a live monthly show at 8pm GMT on the first Sunday of every month well slightly shorter what is it about 44-45 minutes that's still not bad for episode 2 of a story where I think any information that was available uh, was was put out there with episode 1 and uh Well, look, there we go. I was worried about this one because there's no production file at all for The Edge of Destruction. No actors to give biographies of. um, And look, it was two weeks for a very small amount of people in 1964. So what was there to talk about, especially as they didn't go anywhere bar the TARDIS interior? So there we go. Hopefully that will be the hardest one I ever have to do, he said, as he considered that coming up next is an entirely missing seven episodes of a story. Uh, Okay, perhaps this is just going to be hard forever. Oh, thanks. Well, at least there's no chance of me dying before I get to the end of the series. (sighs) 